so far our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So there are some connections uh, between our morning series and our evening series uh, this time around. Uh, When we read the law of God, the Ten Commandments, uh, the point really is self-evaluation. That's that's one of the ministries of the law to call us into, to lead us into self-evaluation. The easiest thing to do, of course, is to compare ourselves to others. And of course, uh, by comparing ourselves to the worst sinners around us, at least to those we consider uh, the worst sinners, uh, in order to uh, uh, come away feeling well about ourselves, we can do such a comparison. But one question that God's law really calls upon us to ask is, am I living as Christ? Am I... um, Am I living unselfishly for others? When the alarm goes off in the morning, does my mind go to the thought of serving, helping, bettering the lives of others? And to clarify, the question is is not really, do I show concern for others? Am I willing, on occasion, in other words, to set aside my central purpose, my self-focus, to serve and help others. Instead, the question of self-evaluation should be, am I living selflessly for the good of others? That, of course, is exactly what Jesus did. Here is our salvation, that Jesus Uh, lived for the welfare of others, including us. And yet he calls us to do the same for one another. Jesus lived even to the point of dying for the welfare of others. And and he calls us to take up our cross. This, This is not haphazard language. He calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. Once again, in this passage from the Gospel of Mark, a certain contrast is set up for us. Mark seems to be into contrast because he keeps doing this to us. This time the contrast is contained within a single passage to some degree. Uh, This time the contrast is between the humility, the selflessness of Jesus and the pride of and the selfishness of his disciples. And the first part of this contrast is set up for us in verses 30 through 32 of Mark 9, because Jesus uh, is once again here teaching his disciples about his impending betrayal, death, and resurrection. In verse 31, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And it will probably help us to note that Jesus isn't saying that this is what will happen if they don't watch out or if they aren't careful. 
Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is what is going to happen. And his disciples were surely hearing Jesus say that this is what he was resigned to have happen to him. And the thing that makes this a a matter of humility and selflessness on Jesus' part is that all of this was a matter of doing the will of his Father. In another place, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he had come to do the will of his Father. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So so this, this resignation on Jesus' part to be betrayed, to die at the hands of men, and to rise again, This is not a matter of pessimism. This is not a matter of fatalism. It's a matter of humility and selflessness. A matter of Jesus humbly putting his Father's will ahead of his own. And it's important to note the the reaction of the disciples to this teaching from Jesus because even in their reaction, we see the beginnings of this contract, uh, this contrast. The, the reaction of the disciples is basically, on this occasion at least, to ignore this teaching from Jesus. Remember that the last time Jesus taught them this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan said Jesus to Peter in his, in his response. But here they, they basically ignore Jesus. Uh, verse 32 says, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so in essence, they just let it go. We don't know what that means, so just let it go in one ear and out the other. But the contrast jumps off the page. Can we see it? I mean, there is a marked contrast here between Jesus and his prediction, his prophecy, his, his teaching to his disciples of what was going to happen and what we hear next about the disciples. In verse 33, we hear Jesus confronting his disciples with this question, What were you discussing on the way? They had just returned to Capernaum, and Mark tells us that in response to this question, they kept silent, because on the way, they had argued who was the greatest. There's the contrast. And so it is confirmed that indeed the disciples did not understand what Jesus meant, that he would be betrayed into the hands of men, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again. They clearly did not understand this and really should have asked Jesus about it because in response to seeing 
hearing the humble and selfless way of Jesus, they are found pridefully arguing about which of them is the greatest, even while their teacher was resolved to die a lowly death. It's hard to imagine what the disciples' conversation might have sounded like. Uh, It would seem impossible that these grown men uh, would have walked along the road saying, I am the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Sorry, but I'm the greatest. And we generally are not likely to do anything like this either. But what we might be tempted to do is, is what the disciples were probably doing. And, uh, and that's to try to decide who is going to get what position in the administrative uh, offices of Jesus. Instead of anticipating the impending betrayal and death of Jesus, they were anticipating the impending coronation of Jesus. And maybe one of them was getting a bit bossy so that the other of them said, uh, well, who put you in charge? And, and another of them said, well, who made you Jesus' right-hand man? Uh, so that the response was given, oh, so you think you're going to be his second in command? So that the answer came, I don't know, but I, I definitely know it's going to be me before it's going to be you. And so it might have gone, it might have gone that they were arguing over who was the greatest. So here was Jesus repeatedly teaching his disciples about the death that he had resigned himself to die in obedience to his father. And here were the disciples arguing about which of them was the greatest. The contrast is impossible to miss. And here is the problem whenever we we simply think of Jesus as our example. If we simply think of Jesus as our example, then we make it clear that we don't know Jesus very well. Because the better we know Jesus, the more his holy character, character will stand not only as our example, but as our conviction for sin. This is what happened repeatedly when, when Jesus, or within Jesus' relationship to his disciples. As his disciples, they were called and expected to imitate him. That's what discipleship is. That's what a disciple did. But the more they got to know Jesus, the more they came to know the great chasm between Jesus and them. And the same is true within Jesus' relationship with so many others who were not his disciples. The more they knew Jesus, the less they could find to accuse him with, and the more they felt conviction for their own sin, and so indeed they killed him. So the first thing we need to do is to recognize Jesus as both as as both our example as as well as our savior. We need to recognize that he came to preach both law and gospel. He came to show us our sin, but also to be our savior from sin. Rather than 
skipping directly to, well, Jesus lived for the welfare of others, therefore I will live for the welfare of others. Instead of skipping directly to that, we need to stop at the cross where a humble Jesus died for prideful sinners, where a selfless Christ died in the place of his selfish disciples, including you and me. But having been to the cross, having recognized Christ as our Savior from sin, and having been empowered by his Spirit, we are certainly called to live after the example of Christ. This is how the kingdom of God will come in the world we live in, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. When those who are trusting in Christ as their Savior are are then filled with the Spirit of Christ for others, for in, in their love for others. The kingdom of God will come as we live unselfishly for the welfare of others. The kingdom of God will come as children. Any children here? As children unselfishly decide not to complain, but to obey their parents cheerfully. The kingdom of God will come as parents. Any parents here? As parents unselfishly give themselves to loving and caring for their children. The kingdom of God will come as employees unselfishly serve their employers. And as employers unselfishly provide their employees with what is loving and with what is fair. The applications here are as many as the relationships that we have in our, in, in our lives. But the application that Jesus makes in our text is how we receive a little child. Again, the lesson is this. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And the application that Jesus makes comes in the next verse when he takes a a little child and has him stand among them and then taking the child in his arms, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever receives one such child in, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So the application that Jesus makes here is, is that we must be humble and selfless enough to welcome and care for children within God's kingdom. But as you probably already suspect, this is more than just a a quick application of the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's an application, but it's also an illustration. And in order to understand the illustration, we need to understand the, the place of children in the culture of Jesus' day. In short, children didn't matter. And, and it won't be so hard to understand because to some extent the same is true in our own culture. In, in, in Jesus' day, children had very few rights and they had absolutely no prestige in the eyes of others. So if you wanted to be taken seriously in almost any field, then the last thing, the last thing you would do is to involve yourself with children? 
The same thing is true of our culture to some extent, and, and it becomes apparent in how parenting is often scorned today as a as 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 as, as a thing not to devote your life to. Why would you do that? It's your career, your career, your career. It's your money, it's your money, it's your portfolio, it's it's what you accumulate, it's it's the prestige that you accomplish in life. This is what matters. There's no prestige in parenting. And so there is often a very negative view of both fatherhood and motherhood. If women want to earn the respect of our culture, then they shouldn't devote themselves to being mothers, of all things. And if men want to earn the respect of our culture, they they shouldn't let their children get in the way of their careers and the social life that they desire either. So we can see that Jesus chose a, a really a very striking illustration for his lesson, and, and it works for both the children of his day as well as the culture of our own day. As he teaches humility and selflessness, he takes a child and he says, in essence, here is where your concern should be. Here is where your devotion must be. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And by the way, he says, in essence, I may be just as nondescript and irrelevant as a child. But whoever receives me, said Jesus, receives not me, but him who sent me. The thing that we can so easily lose sight of is the apparent irrelevance of Jesus Christ. Here was a man who was born in an out-of-way, in an out-of-the-way little town called Bethlehem. He was raised in another nothing town called Nazareth. Here was a man who owned the clothes on his back and nothing else. Here was a man who did some spectacular miracles and made some outlandish claims about himself but only to get himself killed on a Friday morning while the rest of the world went about their business. For most people, he was never to be seen again. That's the story of Jesus from the eyes of the world. But the thing is, That's the story of Jesus that God intended. No glitz, no glamour, no drum rolls at the high points, no violins at the low points. In the end, it just didn't amount to much at all. And so what we so easily lose sight of is how irrelevant, how irrelevant the gospel message was from the beginning, by God's own design, 12 uneducated men were called to the task of preaching that a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who died penniless and, and in the company of evil men, who some of the people may not have even heard of, actually rose from the dead, and he is Savior of the world. And oh, by the way, We'd love to be able to prove it to you by letting you shake hands with the man 
but he's not around anymore. You see, he ascended into heaven. We saw it. We really did, says the apostles. A cloud hid him from our sight. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So all you need to do is to repent of your sin and to believe in him as your Savior. How are we going to believe this? And we really do need not to lose sight of the irrelevance of the, of the gospel message because God ordained it that way. And the reason he ordained it that way is to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. He ordained an irrelevant gospel to reveal his own power and his glory to bring sinners to faith in this very Jesus Christ. For the word, First uh, Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are pe- perishing. Paul admits it. It is folly, but it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's what Jesus is is getting at in in Mark 9. You wonder why I'm going off on this. But that's what Jesus is getting at in Mark 9, granted on a much smaller scale. But if you want to be about the business of the kingdom of God, then forget about the things that shimmer and glow. Forget about pride and prestige. Forget about being clever and slick. Instead, welcome the children. But even more, do other things that are terribly irrelevant, like worship God according to his word. Listen to sermons. Send $100 to an inner city gospel mission as often as you can. Be really, really foolish and irrelevant in the eyes of the world. And then you'll be living for the kingdom of God like you've never lived before. But try really hard to be clever and and to catch the eye of the world, and you're almost sure to be contradicting the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples were arguing about uh, who was going to serve where in the royal administration of King Jesus. But in so doing, they had completely misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, we too, whenever we want to be first, whenever we fail to serve one another and, and those around us, whenever we fail to be as Jesus was and is, we are living contrary to the kingdom of God. Whenever we try to dress up faith, whenever we try to hide the foolishness of the cross, whenever we try to correct the glorious irrelevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are living contrary to the kingdom of God. 
And so it is that we must come to Jesus as a child. Are we, are we ready to do, to do this? It, it would seem that it wasn't long after Jesus called upon his disciples to welcome the children that the disciples were actually turning the children away. But Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands upon them. He wasted his time with the children in the eyes of the world. And as he again called upon his disciples to welcome the children, he furthered the the illustration, this time by calling upon them to be childlike in the way they understood the kingdom of God. The children didn't try to dress Jesus up. They didn't try to rebuke Jesus for his plans. They weren't looking for an office in his administration. Again, a contrast. From Jesus predicting his death to the disciples arguing about who is greatest to a child set among them as Jesus called them to be like this child in their faith. May we do the same. May we unselfishly live for the welfare of others. It will be a terribly foolish thing to do. You will not get the respect of the world if you, if you would live for the welfare of others. If you would give yourself to the welfare of others, then it will be the way that Christ lived and the way that the kingdom will come and the way of all those who are indeed serving Christ. Amen. Let's pray. What a glorious contrast. Not glorious, O God, because it makes us look good, but because it shows us Christ to contrast His way with our own. That we are given to want to be the greatest, to want to be the first, to excel in in prestige. But, O God, you call us to serve. You call us to be the least. You call us to give ourselves for the good of others and to get lost in in the efforts that we make. So grant, O Lord, that indeed we would follow you, that we would... First of all, trust you for the salvation that you provided us exactly by being selfless and going to the cross for us. But then as your Spirit fills us, may we indeed be those who wake up every morning asking, wondering, striving, looking, to better the lives of others around us, starting with our spouse and our children, perhaps, but to continuing to whoever you put us in contact with throughout our day. May we truly live as Christ did for the good of others around us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.